Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is proudly sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Golden makes the best acrylic paints, mediums, and gesso in the business. They also make core watercolors and Williamsburg oil paints. Based in New Berlin in upstate New York, they're an employee-owned company dedicated to making the best supplies for you to make your best work. Check out their products in just about any art store or at goldenpaints.com. Laura Splann is a Brooklyn-based artist whose work mines the materiality of science to reveal poetic subjectives. She received a BA in studio art from the University of California, Irvine, and an MFA in sculpture from Mills College in Oakland. Laura's work has been exhibited at the Museum of Arts and Design and Bial Center of Art and Technology. International audiences for her work have included Iceland, South Korea, England, Germany, Sweden, Austria, and Canada. Her work is included in the collections of the Thoma Art Foundation, the NYU Langone Art Collection, and the Science Center. Her biomedical-themed artworks have been commissioned by the Centers for Disease Control Foundation, the Gen Art New Media Art Exhibition, and Davidson College. She's received research funding from the Jerome Foundation, and her residencies have been supported by the Knight Foundation, the Institute for Electronic Arts, Harvest Works, and the Pollock Krasner Foundation. She's been a visiting lecturer at Stanford University, teaching interdisciplinary courses, including embodied interfaces, data as material, and art and biology. She is currently a Creative Experiments track member at New Inc., the new museum's curatorial incubator. Her current solo exhibition, Confirmations, combines biotech imagery, network devices, and artifacts with sculptures made from the hand-spun fiber of laboratory animals. Here's Laura and I in conversation. So how long have you been in Greenpoint? Uh, I've been in Greenpoint almost 14 years. That's yeah, about... Actually, a little over 14 years. Yeah, so the early 2000s. Yeah, uh, yeah. I moved to Greenpoint in 2005. Okay. Well, so where did you grow up? I grew up in Memphis. Memphis? Yeah. That's a music town. Yeah. Are you, were you into music growing up? Uh, not really. <laughs> <laughs> it's the kind of thing where it's like it's there, you know. I mean, you're, it's you're definitely surrounded by it. Right. And um, did your parents listen to a lot of music? No, um, it was a very quiet house. See, I'm fascinated by that because I talk to a lot of people, and I feel like if you grow up in a household where music's always playing, you yeah. just it's infectious. You yeah. become this music. I have to have music on person. Yeah. But if you some people grow up with not a lot of music on, and then it just doesn't really. Yeah. It, it's not a necessity. It's not. And in fact, I have a hard time listening to music. Really? Um, yeah. Like I, I mostly work in silence in the studio. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That so fits your work. <laughs> <laughs> I could totally I, picture that. There, there are only certain kinds of projects where I can listen to music. Like anything that's repetitive tasks, like the latch hooking that I was doing for yeah. this exhibition or, um, or just like kind of tedious um mindless like cleaning or something oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah mindless tasks or things that aren't necessarily mindless but 
it's more like technical execution, um, I can listen to to music or so, like podcast so, or something. Right. Like if you're doing like a hooking project, like yeah. where you're doing that repetitive motion over and over. Yeah. What's like an example of the music you'll put on? Um, Is it repetitive electronic music? <laughs> I, I, I do. I do like re- like the mellow beat station on Spotify. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I also am a big fan of like reggae and rocksteady and. Nice. Uh, well, how did dance hall? So, how did that come? Which about? is also kind of repetitive. Like, yeah. Um, I think one reason a lot of people are averse to reggae is because it all kinds of kind of sounds the same sometimes. Yeah. Well, it's like blues in that sense. Right. It's got like it, there's a foundation. You yeah. Know? There's a template in a way. Yeah. So it's I like just enough music to kind of make it feel sane, but also like not too many changes or right. or like uh, switches in mood. So modal jazz isn't your thing. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, how did reggae come into play though? You where did know, that? Where in your life did you come across? Re- rock steady or like dub and and you thought this this is my music i i started listening to it when i was living in southern california and i just had some friends that were listening to it and i guess that's how i was kind of introduced to it yeah and yeah i don't know i think i've always had a fascination and kind of like uh inclination to spend more time in tropical situations (laughs) so um i think with with that just comes interest in the music and uh whatever culture you're kind of either visiting or uh interested in so yeah i I think it started with reggae and then i just got more interested in the history of it Mm -hmm. and um and then i i I don't know. I never really was like a record collector, mm-hmm. but um, I think I, as I started to kind of look more into reggae, I started looking more at like the album art and, uh, and then was just kind of looking for something to kind of break up that monotonous work in the studio so I ended up buying a turntable and now I've started kind of a very small collection of reggae records nice that's great <laughs> most of which come from the the record grouch uh, store in green oh <laughs> yeah yeah that's a good spot um so yeah it just kind of like yeah it, I mean I think it's like a just a very low maintenance uh like low investment uh, hobby. Yeah. I think it's kind of like a, it's really more of like a hobby. It's right. like, it's, it's the thing that I'm like, I'm not trying to be like an expert on it. I'm not trying to like go too deep into it. It's just kind of something to, to fiddle with or like get into. Right. Um, and, and just kind of wander through playlists and, um, and that's usually how I decide like, if I'm going to actually look into buying something and, yeah. uh, nothing transports you to, for me anyways, like feeling like I'm in a warm climate, like reggae. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's, it's weather escapist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like Hawaiian music does too, but yeah. it's so specific. I feel like reggae just feels like you can be transported to a beach. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it so does. funny when I was growing up, like reggae was, I don't know why it was like seen as this music is like, 
why would you listen to you know there was a real people really hate it yeah people really hate it and and that became more and more offensive to me as I got older I was like this is like a political kind of like it's very intrinsic to you know like Rastafari and like a very specific people and to cast that off as like this joke music was really kind of off-putting as I got older yeah yeah I I mean the lyrics are really intense yeah they are and and I actually wasn't paying attention to the lyrics for a long time. And then I've just kind of started to listen to them a little bit more closely. And, um, yeah, they get really religious yeah. and they get um, very political. Definitely. And, um, yeah, I think that that whole history of the role that reggae music played in um, the politics of Jamaica, for example, is, like, super powerful. Definitely. And, um, yeah. But and through its sort of migration into dub had yeah. a huge effect on current like electronic music too. Oh yeah. Yeah. With like layering and that early reverb and all that stuff. Anyway, this is the reggae wormhole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to get to it sounds like you've moved around a lot. So Memphis you is where you grew up. Your parents were scientists, I'm guessing. No, I'm oh, kidding. No. I'm kidding. <laughs> what did your parents do? My dad um he was a CPA. Uh, he started out as an accountant, but then he ended up working for um, a company that manufactured medical products mm-hmm. and um, orthopedic products and implants. And that that company was called Smith and Nephew Richards, and so they had a plant in Memphis. Mm-hmm. And um, and he ended up kind of I think he was like the vice president of the company or something and before he retired worked his um, way up. so he yeah he kind of yeah. worked his way up and uh and you know it was a pretty like straightforward like nine to five corporate job yeah. and um and my mom was a homemaker and full-time parent and um she she also is an artist and has always done like watercolor, oil painting, and um, was really into writing lyrics and poetry at certain points. And um, yeah, so they were not scientists, but uh, my dad did bring home a lot of products and catalogs yeah. from his business, which I was always really fascinated with. I was going to say, that must pique your interest. Yeah, I mean, I was kind of obsessed with artificial hips for a while. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, these like beautiful stainless steel sculptures, yeah. and um, and even just like around the house, you know, you, you'd be hard pressed to find like a regular pair of scissors. For some reason, we just had like an abundance of surgical scissors. Like mm-hmm. that was the household scissors for right. everything. Um, so yeah, so there were. I mean, there were definitely certain influences that that his job had on my work and like my interest in biomedical imagery and um yeah so yeah it seems like between the two parents it's pretty prescriptive as as far as how how your work is right now it came it seems like it came from that influence of creativity from your mom I'm sure it's from both sides but you know what I mean yeah like it it makes sense yeah I think it does (laughs) it's uh you know, there's there's so many like random influences you can trace your right. practice to, but um, you know that that go beyond just like parents or even like what their professions were. So um, yeah, I think it makes sense. Well, early on in school, was your was creativity intermingling with you know your interest in science and 
you know, like, or were you really in the art class? Were you really in the science class? Did you lean towards both? In like before college, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, um, I there were. I mean, there were certain science teachers I had that were particularly um, entertaining or like great teachers at the subject. Um, but there were also science teachers I had, and I was just like, I don't think I'm getting this. Yeah. <laughs> um, and. Yeah, we, I mean, we actually did have a lot of art classes in the schools that I went to, and but they were pretty conventional, and you know, it was pretty much like watercolor or oil pastel, chalk pastel, hi-fi grays. Like that was the extent of materials that we used. We never really got into sculpture or photography or um, anything too like materials or equipment right. intensive. So um, I don't know. It was. It always felt like an an elective for me and it, it was always like the class that was fun yeah. um it was the class that like you kind of coordinated with your friends to figure out what period you're going to take it in so you right. could all just talk the whole time and so it was definitely a positive experience um but i i never saw myself uh being an artist right. at that point um, well you didn't go to school directly for college for art, right? No, you I originally studied biology, biology, and and then I switched once I had taken a lot of art electives. And, and caught the bug. Yeah, yeah, it really piqued my interest on a lot of different levels. It wasn't just about um, art; it was also about politics. And um, the program I w- was in was really conceptually based, and they were presenting a lot of artists to us that were doing activist projects and really politically focused projects and um and so I I think that you know I went into school not feeling like I was a great artist but I was really interested in art so that kind of program I think gave a lot of people license to feel like they could be an artist without having like art skills so and like changing what the idea of art skills was um that it was about more than just being able to draw something representational do you think if you went to say a traditional art school that it would have been much more difficult in that sense of feeling like well i don't know if i fit into this mode of making yeah i don't think i would have changed my major yeah (laughs) i think that i would have been too intimidated right um if if i had been to a school that was focused on um technique and not concept that i i would have been too intimidated right and but then after school, I felt like a real gap in how I was able to communicate ideas and the presentation of work and the execution of work. And so then I kind of went the other direction and really started to figure out where I needed to be and what I needed to be doing to hone like a different set of skills that had a lot more to do with technique. So what did you like after you graduated? What was the next step, you know? So I, in my undergraduate, the tools that I kind of gravitated towards were photography and video and digital imaging, which, you know, at first I felt like, oh, these are these are something I can do because mm-hmm. you kind of just point a camera at something. And you take a picture, which isn't true, but I thought at the time that right. it was. So that was my entry into art making um, tool wise. And so you know, there were a lot of like challenges with working with those materials and tools um, that were primarily just like 
technical thing, you know, just understanding electronics a little bit better. So um, I had a couple of people actually from my program at UC Irvine that recommended uh, when I moved to San Francisco that recommended I contact the Bay Area Video Coalition, which is a nonprofit media art center that they each had some connection to. And they had a at the time they had a really fantastic internship. I don't I don't know if they still have the same kind of program, but um you just got tons of hands-on training in video technology and um it was a really wonderful like deep dive into to video and um video technology and video editing tools and techniques and um and then through that I ended up being a freelance editor in their editing suites for clients that would come in and um, they're working on anything from like an art video to documentaries to, um, you know, kind of like art documentation, like a lot of dance documentation. Yeah. Um, and they would need to edit something together, but they wouldn't know how to operate the equipment. So they would hire um, freelance editors for that. So I did that for quite a while. And then uh, that transitioned uh into working in the video facility as a video technician and working in what's called the cold room Mm -hmm. uh and doing dubs (laughs) so like doing duplication and preservation type work with uh different video formats you're compiling so much so many skills, it seems. Oh, yeah. It was amazing. I was there for 10 years, too. Wow. Um, so, I, you know, I started out as an intern, worked in the facility, worked as an editor in suites. And um, and then so I was kind of learning a lot of technology, but also learning a lot about video art and performance art and dance documentation, like just kind of finding out about about a lot of artists through working with the clients there because it was you know it was a nonprofit so they were attracting a lot of um, you know independent artists and nonprofit organizations and art institutions um, so I was getting exposed to a lot yeah um, were you making at the same time or were you just working more than making I, I was yeah I was I was making work I was making video art and then also I also had a um, public access television show oh, really <laughs> that when, I would edit in the middle of the night with my friend in the editing suites when, where did it when and where did it play like, it was, was it? on I think it was channel 53 uh-huh. um, which I think was called city visions nice cool title <laughs> yeah it was very cool and they yeah there was like a studio on Folsom Street mm-hmm. and our show was like a showcase of independent media art so we would interview artists about their video or film work in front of sometimes in front of a green screen, green screen. <laughs> nice <laughs> what time did it air um, I'm imagining late God. night I don't remember. I it was late. I I don't remember. I want to say like I don't know nine o'clock on a Tuesday night or something yeah. like. Um, remember when there were schedules for things? Yeah, like things yeah. would air at a time, and I think it actually would air <laughs> twice sometimes for some reason. Bonus. Like you you got like two slots, right? Um, so so that was also like kind of a more self directed 
um, exploration of, um, it was mostly local artists, but we, we put out like an international call for artists Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, and I'm still in touch with some of those artists. It was, it was a really good experience and, um, and then, and then kind of during that same time, the whole dot-com boom was happening in San Francisco and, um, so the, the place I was working was getting a lot of funding to educate the workforce. Mm -hmm. Um, so there was all this development in the education department to start training people on everything from digital imaging to digital video editing to, um, animation and also web design. And so I had all these opportunities to start teaching. And so I started teaching all these different classes there and started, um, learning through taking classes and then also teaching myself, um, web design. And, um, and so by the time I left there in 2005, I was just teaching a ton of classes and getting all this teaching experience, which was really amazing. And these are just people who are working for dot-com businesses that need to learn. It sometimes was that, but they also had programs where it was underemployed, um, workers or they had like an after school at risk youth program. Mm -hmm. And so it was a pretty wide spectrum of students, depending on the specific program that I was teaching in. Um, and so sometimes it was people that had no, uh, training yet that you were really starting from scratch in terms of like teaching them basic computer skills and then teaching them how to use all these different tools. Was this, are we talking like HTML or like Dreamweaver stuff? All of it. Yeah. I know, <laughs> so, I remember I had to learn, I had to teach myself HTML. Yeah. Which nowadays, when you see something like Squarespace, you're like, oh my God, it's so much easier yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, no, it was, it was really challenging. It was like, you know, you started from scratch with HTML and CSS and then they got to use Dreamweaver and then you were using Photoshop and Illustrator to create images for whatever website they were creating, they usually had like a, a real client project that they were making an actual website for an actual organization. And, um, it was, it was a lot of different tools that they were being thrown into. And, um, it was, it was, uh, you know, just particularly good teaching experience because you really, you really realize like how much you do and don't know very quickly yeah. and also just have to teach um, because this, the kind of range of students was so wide, you learn how to teach a lot of different kinds of students, which um, was really valuable. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. So how did, what was the, I mean, you spent 10 years doing that. Well, I was at Bayback for 10 years, but I was doing a lot of different things. But I mean, I, I, yeah, I really started teaching pretty much as soon as I got there because um, sometimes they would just get people who wanted to operate the editing suites themselves, but they just needed training. So I was training people how to use the equipment themselves and, uh, and then they could book time and work independently. So what, what took you out of San Francisco? Um, I think 
just not having ever lived in New York and wanting to. Um, I mean, I don't, I can't really think of any better reason to live well, in New York like other you than had, just to... You had so much going on, you know what I mean? And it seems like, yeah. I'm, I'm sure at that point you had kind of settled into the city, right? Yeah. Or I did you I always I actually feel like... never pictured myself living there that long. Yeah. Um, Ten years seemed like a shockingly long time by the time I left. Yeah. And uh, I think I kind of had always imagined myself living other places. And... Uh, and after 10 years, San Francisco felt much smaller than I thought it would. And when I, f- I remember first moving there and feeling like it was really overwhelming and it was a really big city and that I would never like understand it or be able to get around easily. And by the time I left, I was like, oh, this is like a tiny geographical area, yeah. San Francisco at least. Right. And um, so I don't know. I just felt like I'd gotten... Um, what I wanted out of it and that there were things that maybe existed in New York that didn't in San Francisco that I could start exploring. But it wasn't like one specific opportunity that, you know, like someone said, Hey, I got an apartment that I'm giving up. Come take. No, no. (laughs) So you moved to Greenpoint straight from. Yeah. Me and my partner just like decided to move to green to, to New York. And we, didn't really move very much furniture. We had like, um, I think we moved one bookshelf and Mm -hmm. that was it. And we just like got rid of everything. And, um, we drove a three cylinder geo Metro from San Francisco to New York (laughs) with two cats and a bookcase. (laughs) That geo made it barely. That's impressive. Yeah. Geos. They're not even, they're not really even cars. (laughs) No, I was going to say they're not around anymore, but They're just like a box. With They're four basically wheels. motorcycles with like a car <laughs> chassis on them. Well, that's that's pretty impressive. Yeah, it was also terrifying. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Driving cars. Have you done that before? Um, I you know I don't know. Maybe that was the first time I've driven cross country. I feel like it's such an eye opening experience. Well, it was a stressful experience. We were mostly just trying to like get there before the car broke down. <laughs> Holding um, on for dear so life. So we and we had two cats on we we had two cats. We went to Memphis and then it was like this whole convoluted thing. So there was some sort of pit stop in Memphis for some reason and then and then we went on to Brooklyn and we stayed with friends for two weeks while we were looking for a place. And um, With the cats? No, the cats were left in Memphis, I think maybe because we couldn't bring them where we were staying. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, two weeks without the cats and just looking for places to live. And um, we really lucked out. And we're actually still in the same place that nice. we were when we moved. Um, so how did you get settled or, you know, get situated in the city? Did yeah. you know a lot of people in the city at that point? Or um, were you just... Yeah, we knew. Yeah, we knew a lot of people that either had moved from the Bay Area or friends from college. Um, so, yeah, we knew enough people that it didn't feel like we were just... Um, in the, you know, in the middle of a sea of anonymity or anything. So, um, it was, yeah, it was exciting. And then, uh, so yeah, I, 
I didn't have any work or anything lined up in New York. So I was actually flying back to San Francisco to teach my classes at Bayback for actually, I think a couple of years I was doing that. Whoa, that's a commute. Yeah. So I would fly back and I would teach a ton of classes for like two weeks, sometimes three weeks straight. Oh, like condensed courses? Condensed. I would teach from like 10 a.m. until 10 p.m. at night. (laughs) And then I would go home and not work for a while and just work in the studio. Well, that's nice. Yeah. I guess you had separation to church and state on that one. You know, yeah. it's kind of like, all right, I'll go out there, do the work, come back and do yeah. my thing. It was great. It was really exhausting. But I'm sure. I, I was thankful that I was able to do that for a little while. And um, and then I started to teach more in in New York. Yeah. And um, Now, and did you have a studio right away or did you work where you lived? Or how yeah, did that work? so we actually found a live workspace in Greenpoint. Nice. So um, it's just kind of a funky old building that uh, originally was a pharmaceutical factory and then became a knitting factory. Mm-hmm. And the, the our landlord actually ran a knitting factory out of it and then decided he could just make more money there yeah Yeah. um and i think i I know that building yeah 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 and so yeah it's like a it was a pretty it was a relatively raw um live workspace though whoever lived there before us um made some really good decisions so (laughs) um and but it's it was great because we could kind of like you know, tear down walls and like rebuild it the way that we wanted for our studios. And, um, so after probably about eight years, we both had made enough art that we outgrew sharing the space together. So now Ruben has his space, his studio there. And then I've had studios outside, uh, since then. And do you like having it outside of where you live? I, I actually really loved having a studio at home, um, but it, it there just wasn't enough space. And um, I had the first studio I had was at that 67 West building, yeah. and it was just in a super funky space. It was like a space within a space within a space, right. <laughs> like one of those kinds of build outs. And yeah. um, it was just kind of inherited from a friend and it was one of those things that was like too good to be true because it was so cheap and it lasted almost a year and but after that I realized like oh it's better for me to have a studio outside just in terms of storage and kind of um like just in terms of what materials and we were each using and how we were using the space it just made more sense for me to get a space outside so um, it's, it's got its advantages, but I actually don't mind working at home. Yeah, at I did all. it. I did it for, I think for years and years where I had an apart, like a loft where I lived and worked and I loved it. Mm-hmm. But then I had a kid and it was like, okay, I can't. Although yeah. Well, it, I, I think it could have worked, but in my mind I was like, I can't have like paints and all oh, that stuff around, you yeah, know, it's just, yeah. and just to separate it. But so I did, but I think I could could have made it work yeah but there is something really nice about like rolling out of bed making a pot of coffee and just going right you're right there yeah no commute yeah 
But then again, I was doing that year after year after year. So there is something nice about stepping out into the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now my studio is really just like a five minute walk away. Mm-hmm. So it's really, it really feels like just walking down the hall. Right. So it, it actually feels like having a studio yeah. at home. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's sort of an, uh, ideal spot right now. Yeah. Um, Hopefully it will last. Right. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the work. I mean, there's there's so many different sort of avenues that your work goes down. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? How mm-hmm. did you, I guess, maybe you could talk a little bit about those different avenues and how you kind of came to them mm-hmm. and how you see it as a whole, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's sort of, um, there's sort of three things that intersect a lot in my work and one of them is textiles experimentation one of them is experimenting with technology and fabrication and then another is exploring science and biomedical themes and the history of science and the kind of status of science and culture and um and I think like the textiles really are the most intuitive part for me that I just kind of feel like I kind of wander through with the most um, freedom and kind of uh, not necessarily command, but uh, just just kind of like loose exploration of things and uh, and and kind of just pick up and figure out as I go. Um, And yeah, I think from my time at Bayback and working with video technology so much that, and then starting to get into code there um, with web design that, um, that that really led me to getting, to continuing that uh, after I worked there to continuing that kind of exploration with technology and, digital fabrication tools. And um, so, you know, so I was doing work with digital imaging and video early on, and I've just kind of brought textiles into the work in a lot of different ways, like mostly as a way to engage viewers with tactility. Um, It's just kind of this way to kind of uh, foil the, what can be like the coldness of technology and, um, and then it wasn't until uh, 1996 when Dolly was cloned that I started to actually intentionally bring in and explore biomedical imagery uh, and themes in my work. And uh, I was just really struck by how the conversations people were having around the, the implications of um, of genetic engineering that I thought there were just some really interesting conversations to be had. And like the ethical, the ethical, of, I mean, that seems and, to be the big. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. Like, so that should we do this? Right. Should we do this? And also the speculative. So if we do this, like what are the possibilities? Right. And, um, and also just the historical. So how has, how have technologies like this that already exist been functioning in the past? Um, and, and, where do they come from? Who developed them? Um, so, yeah, I just felt like it was really rich territory to explore. And so I've been kind of combining those three 
elements in my work since then. And, you know, that includes everything from really straightforward, what, or well, what are seemingly straightforward textiles projects like a latch-hooked rug to um, working with biological materials like blood to working with technologies like 3D printing. Mm-hmm. So um, kind of finding different ways to bring these things together and kind of sometimes starting with sort of a, a problem that is sort of puzzle-like that seems like it needs to be solved through figuring out how these three things fit together and um, sometimes just materials experimentation um, and kind of a lot of the work that I've done with materials is making things that are not textiles seem like textiles and um, kind of making things do what they're not supposed to. Um, And and same with technology sometimes, like making technologies do things that they weren't intended to do that are like highly impractical or... Um, kind of largely dysfunctional. Yeah. Now is that to sort of reverberate this like um, or reflect the functioning slash, you know, purpose of technology and how, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just to kind of destabilize people for a moment and destabilize perceptions of what technology should be doing and and also to kind of materialize technologies in a different way. So like the current exhibition um, has a piece that is um, is a laboratory shaker that is Twitter enabled. So yeah. it's only going to shake when somebody tweets hashtags that relate to certain words that are currently contested in science um, as a culture, so that are culturally contested. Um, so words like, um, vaccination or climate change, um, are when those are tweeted, that's what actually actuates this, this laboratory shaker. Um, so kind of bringing together, um, things that are already happening and just materializing them in a different way. Well, that piece is a great thing to talk about because first of all, I love the aesthetics of it. Oh, thanks. And is that... A pre-existing shaker? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's like a really standard laboratory. It's got its own aesthetic, basically. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) in a way, it's almost, it's kind of like ready-made. Yes. In a sense. So when work, and this leads to like a bigger question about your work and what I'm interested in is, it it just feels like the conceptual side of it's so much the trigger of the work, right? Mm -hmm. And which, you know, isn't always the case. Like a lot of times in artwork, there's improvisation and there's, you know, finding things along the way mm-hmm. it seems like the 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 conceptual side is the real genesis and then it's you know kind of executing the piece in a way mm-hmm. and it's with with a piece like that are you writing down like is the viewer savvy to what that you know mm-hmm. the the charges of the piece like is it written out for them and how do you integrate that into the experience of the viewer mm-hmm. so they're not you know or they could be left in the dark in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, you wouldn't have to spell it out and they could just come to this thing and be like, what in the world is this? You know what I mean? Yeah. But how do you do that? How do you lead the viewer to the work in that sense? Yeah, I mean, I think that piece in particularly in particular is, is more 
mysterious than some of the other work in the show. And yeah, there's a gallery guide that has like a paragraph explanation of every piece in the show that Mm -hmm. people can kind of read or not read. And, um, and and that was definitely important to me with that exhibition because there are some pieces like the, the latch hooked rug that people sit on and listen to a sound piece that actually has instructions kind of built into the artwork. So people know what to do with it. They know they can sit on the rug. They, it's obvious that they can put on headphones and their sound is already playing. So there's already this experience to be had. Whereas with the, um, so, so that doesn't necessarily require, um, any additional explanation of what the sensory experience is at first, um, first glance. But if you do read about the work, you learn that the rug is made with the fiber of laboratory animals. So there are these other layers that are really important to me and important to the making of the work and important to, um, the full understanding and experience of the work. But there is also this other sensory experience to be had without any additional information that is just kind of our shared understanding of what to do with a rug or like how to touch a rug. Um, but yeah, the laboratory shaker, uh, it, it, because it only shakes when certain tweets are posted on Twitter, um, it, it might just be sitting there doing nothing for a few minutes. And so you wouldn't know what to do. And in fact, um, we didn't have any signage or anything on it at, at all at first. And people were like turning it on and off and oh, like no. changing the speed. <laughs> so we did had they know what was in those tubes. <laughs> I I don't know. No, they didn't. I don't. You don't think, want to vibrate that too hard, right? Exactly. So, <laughs> um, so we did have to put like a "do not touch" sign on mm-hmm. it, um, which is a totally understandable confusion because how do you have one piece situated pretty closely to another piece um, where one you're allowed to like actually sit on and touch and the other yeah. one you're not allowed to touch. So, and there's a knob on it. Yeah. And you're like, yes. well, I just want to touch this thing. Of course, I would do the same thing. Right. <laughs> so um, so we did have to put a do not touch sign on that. But yeah, so I mean, given that you're you kind of know you're not supposed to touch it, then there is this kind of um, potential to, to wait and see if something happens because you have this question of like, why is this here? Um, surely it does something and there's something in those tubes. So like, what's, what's going to happen? And you kind of get the sense that it's, it's a shaking device of some sorts. So, um, yeah, that's a piece that I think requires a little bit more investigation on the viewer's part and in, in, in to read the text to, to kind of even have entry yeah. into the work. And I don't mind that. I, I don't no, actually seems, have a problem with that. And seem very comfortable. I would imagine to make the work you make, you have to be comfortable in the fact that it's really linked to the viewing experience of conceptual art, which yeah. has, you know, a lot to do with the fact that the the underlying cause or generation of the piece is so ingrained into the artist's working method. It's not transparent to the viewer Mm -hmm. that they're going to be left out of a lot of that experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that takes a certain confidence or kind of like a punk ethos of like, well, this is what the piece is. You know what I mean? Like the sound in that piece that you played yesterday, Uh you played that full on. Like, you know, you played that for a while and it's not, 
Yeah. It's not welcoming. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> it's not the kind of thing that's engaging past a certain Right. There's a certain amount of of almost in a way a relation to the kind of music that you said that you weren't that interested or weren't so into <laughs> of that improvisational jazz where right. the musicians are just they're exploring that composition mm-hmm. past they don't care if the audience is along with them on the ride. It's about the ride. Right. Do you know what I mean? It seems like a lot of your art making process is much more embedded in the ride than it is the viewers ride with you. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot about, um, I mean, a lot of the pieces kind of require, um, a certain patience and anticipation, like this idea that if, if you are curious enough about something that you'll learn something important or you'll learn something that, um, is intriguing or or playful or funny or um dark or you know that um there'll be some sort of twist that happens along the way and um and yeah with the sound piece it was it kind of started I mean it started as like this rather documentary approach Mm -hmm. to um to these, to the recordings of these machines that I had. And then as I listened to them more, I realized there were all these other things happening in the room at the same time that I wasn't really clued into when I was making the recordings. So like footsteps and laughter and like scientists negotiating time on machines and, um, just little jokes that people would make as I was moving around the lab. And, um, so yeah, that piece was, it was intended to be this immersive experience where you feel like you're really kind of moving around the lab. Um, so there, I wasn't, I decided to not try to make it particularly musical. Right. Um, where the keys though, it's different. Uh huh. Like the key pieces become really wind chimey and pleasant in a way, you know what I mean? It's kind of the flip of that. Right. Right. So yeah, the, the, the motorized sculpture that has the keys that chime is this really kind of ethereal, lovely, whimsical, whimsical, um, sound that is actually kind of amplified by the fact that people don't know it's going to turn. So it's this kind of surprise that you actually, if you're, if you're actually looking at it, it starts to turn and it, there's a slight delay before the keys start to actually hit each other. So you actually see it move before you hear it move, which yeah. is a kind of odd experience. Sonic boom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like a plane going by and you hear it later. Yeah, it's it's sort of um, unsettling, actually, that yeah. you're like seeing something move, but you're not hearing anything. And uh, yeah, so that there are these different approaches that I take and it just depends on the material that I'm dealing with. And that whole room is very much about anticipation. So the other things that are happening in that room is, um, there are actual like hay bales that people can sit on while they wait for that wind, that like wind chimey piece to, to turn every 90 seconds. And then there's also, a neon sign that says sit around and wait. So it's kind of this instruction as to what to do. And and also um, this planting the seed that something might happen, you know, this, this kind of assumption that if, if I'm being told to sit around and wait, that there's something to follow. And, 
And then there's also this animation that people can watch while while they're sitting around and waiting. Um, so that room kind of has a different relationship to the idea of anticipation than the sound. I mean, the sound was really the sound on the headphones with the rug was was really much more about this this kind of immersive sonic tour of the lab that even though it was like highly edited, it, it felt like I wanted it to feel like you were moving around the lab and um, on this this kind of like wandering tour of the sounds and of labor really yeah. I was really I was really focused on the sounds of of the labor of bodies and the labor of machines and I actually did um I, I don't have any music training so I was kind of struggling to think about how to even structure the editing of the sound and um I it I actually did use like a musical template to to kind of figure out how to time things because I was I was I felt like I needed some sort of structure to impose these different vignettes of sound that oh, were so happening. that wasn't just a live recording that no was, no it was, it was like edited collaged basically right yeah 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 oh, that's um, interesting so I ended up following the structure of Bohemian Rhapsody <laughs> really <laughs> so it's five <laughs> minutes and 55 seconds exactly <laughs> And it like that's all a fun sh- Easter egg. Yeah, I just like I was just like where where to start with this Queen? That makes sense. Yeah, yeah of course. So, um, have you ever listened to music like Microstoria or like Oval or people who do like field recordings and sort of glitch them out? And there was like a um, movement in like the early two thousands of mm-hmm. experimental. I mean, it's real deep cut, and most people will listen to it and be like, "What? What is this?" You yeah. know. But or like Christian Fenez, there uh-huh. were like a lot of people doing that kind of recording that's pretty amazing yeah I mean I probably have heard a lot of it because Mills College had such a intense like electronic music Mm -hmm. scene and um and there were even people a lot of people doing that in San Francisco but uh it's it's not it's not um something I've really dived too deeply in I mean I was Listening, I mean, I do listen to a lot of um, different kinds of music depending on what I'm doing, but um, I was kind of looking at like Laurie Anderson and Holly Herndon and um, more like that kind of yeah. uh, more performative uh, kind of atmospheric uh, treatment of sound and also just like a lot of mm, atmospheric like dance music mm-hmm. um that's what i listen to when i'm on the treadmill yeah <laughs> <laughs> Did you, have you ever uh, done any like vr or ar stuff i haven't is it something that you're interested in at all i am and um i would think it could be in your wheelhouse potentially i mean i know that's a loose throwing yeah. it together of like oh it's tech but no it, you could put a viewer like thinking about the music and like that virtual walk through mm-hmm, the space mm-hmm. i would think there there's some play there with being able to put people in certain environments yeah maybe not literally but you know yeah yeah i i feel like i'm still waiting for it to develop yeah like there's still something missing for me when i experience vr and ar stuff and 
it's mostly I just feel like the technology needs to catch up to what people are trying to do with it. It's in the beta phase. Yeah. It's, you know, it's yeah. in the HTML zone right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I've, you know, I've seen people do really, you know, innovative, interesting work with it. Um, and but I, I just don't feel connected to it as a tool yet. I think it will explode once the um, the hardware, like the functioning mm-hmm. part of it, gets more ubiquitous and easier to, yeah. you know, navigate. And that's going to be some sort of breakthrough in development that we can't even kind of understand at this point. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Whether it's like contacts or something that you could put in or, you know, some sort of more seamless way than strapping a giant piece of headgear on and like bumping into things. Yeah, it's <laughs> still really... Um, just such a material like roadblock and um even if the if it's working properly and so many times there's like just a little bit of a tutorial that needs to be had first or um or things need to be maintained in a certain way and that and then it becomes like this spectacle of the maintenance of technology right. yeah <laughs> so i mean even with with um the networked sculptures that i have in this exhibition, it was really important to me that, um, I don't know, I decided to not make the technology behind the technology conspicuous. Like I really wanted it to just be something that didn't read immediately as a networked sculpture. Um, and so that it could be experienced as this object first and, uh, that there wouldn't be this other element that felt like it was something that couldn't be understood mm-hmm. um, by its physical materiality. Um, and, yeah, I think that I still feel reluctant to bring the kind of, yeah, like the spectacle of technology as something that needs to be taught to you before you can use it and um, I really like to try to create an experience where um, there's some sort of intuitive engagement which you know even like the problems I had with that shaker like that was very telling that like oh if I if I wanted to make a piece where people were supposed to turn this on and off or change the speed that's done you know (laughs) that's um, did that research yeah did that research and um and that's, you know, that's why I like bring in te- um, textiles so much is like it's people kind of know what to do with it. Yeah. They understand it as a material. Um, and so, I, you know, I try to actually um, move more towards things that feel accessible to viewers. Um, but the more VR and AR experiences that are out there, the more it will just become like a phone that, that people, enough people understand. And, um, but yeah, there's just so many mm, roadblocks there still in terms of software, hardware, memory, um, and, and just general public knowledge about how to operate these devices. Um, I guess I, I guess I sort of, fear like just alienating too many people with those technologies and then also losing this um tactile experience that i'm really invested in and 
Um, and, you know, AR kind of has like a different uh, relationship to that because you can have this screen-based interaction with a material space. Yeah. Um, but it's... I, I guess I'm just not convinced that I need it. Right. Because... <laughs> You know, if the point is the concept, there's different ways to communicate the concept. Like, I don't, yeah, I, it ha, there has to be a reason, and I haven't had a reason yet. I mean, even with, like, some of the computerized jacquard weaving work that I did, mm-hmm. I learned about computerized jacquard weaving in 2004, and it took me that long to 2015 to figure out why to use it. Right. <laughs> so maybe, you know, give me 10 years and maybe I'll do something. Now, do you think singularity is going to hit within those 10 years <laughs> to where this all becomes moot? Yeah. Do you think it's coming? Yeah. I mean, technology is just changing so quickly and, um, yeah, I mean, I think we're all already cyborgs and that, yeah, I think that it's there's already so much happening that we chalk up to not being related te- to technology mm-hmm. and um yeah, I I think we're almost there. Remember when you would see those old videos or pictures of Stellark? Do you remember oh that? yeah, yeah. He's actually one of the artists that I learned about in when I was editing video at Bayback. And you were just like, well, at least we were like, what the like? There's no, no, that's just you know, like crazy talk or whatever. Uh huh. But we're basically that with our phones now. Yeah. Like it looks different, but yeah. it's basically attached to our face. Yeah. <laughs> Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like how many times you're walking down the street and you just see people like walking in the middle of the road with their phone? It's where our life is mediated through that phone. Oh, absolutely. Like, it's not even a question. No. no. I mean, there's a few people out there left yeah, <laughs> who are I mean, off the grid, but we're basically, like, yeah. mediating our existence through, like, so much of the decision-making that we do is through, like, technology and doesn't have, like, a firm, you know, there's no sort of, like, concrete thing behind it. Yeah. You know, like, likes is the perfect example of, like, you could live your life a totally different way to get quote unquote likes right, or followers or whatever. And that doesn't, it, it's not even, they're just number. Uh, it's basically like money. You yeah. know what I mean? Like we'll do, people will kill for this little piece of paper with a guy's picture on it and a number on it. Yeah. Do you know? So it's like, it's only getting faster, more complex and more integrated. Yeah. I think. And, it, and, and that's what technology does. It just, it's technology. It develops it. It compiles it. It just keeps growing and, you know. Yeah, and, and we're just so emotionally invested in it yeah. throughout our day. Like, we, we're, um, like, our kind of emotional experience of the outside world is so networked and right? um, so dependent upon access and feedback from these networks. But we, we kind of pretend like it's not like in other words like if i was walking around all day with a robot Mm -hmm. and it was my partner and i cared a lot about you know what i mean and Mm -hmm. it was my my partner in life or whatever people would be like what a weird you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like how could you emotionally all these like judgments or whatever but that's basically what we're doing through our phones in a way yeah like so much of our emotional response and so much of our 
decision making and stuff is based on you know data yeah I guess that's going down a whole different road well I think if you I think that it it's um it's sort of a testament to design I mean if you it's a lot sexier to walk down the street with a phone than a robot right you know it's it's more like culturally acceptable I guess yeah yeah. (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah I think that that's what's been done so successfully is just designing the technology packaging the technology um and creating interfaces with the technology that give it a different um kind of position in culture that uh kind of masks a lot of its function its actual function yeah um that you know just like you know all the like the idea of a free app Right. It's like it's not really free. Right, right. <laughs> Nothing's free. <laughs> um, but that at the same time, like, serves some useful function. Uh, you know, again, like the function becomes part of the packaging. It's like becomes part of the surface that's actually masking the data that it's collecting right. and selling. That's genius and menacing at the same time. <laughs> Are you a huge, I mean, obviously so much of your interest lies between sort of like the gray area, you know, of, of technology and like programs or like using sort of automation in a way, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. mediated things. Mm-hmm. Like, are you a huge analog fan as well? Like, will you go out and just love a painting show? No. You're not into it? Um. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I love it. That's no, I, I, I actually really, I love things that work, you know, Hmm. and, and that could be a painting, but it, you know, it depends on what I want the thing to do. Yeah. Paintings aren't supposed to work really though. Well, they can work. No, I think that they can, they can, they work if they make me feel something. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think um, I'm actually totally enamored of technology mm-hmm. and um, and and think that it can do amazing things um, and solve lots of problems. That's not necessarily what people are doing with it. Right. Um, but that doesn't say anything about the technology. It just says how we're using it. That's just people too, right? Yeah. We can cause problems yeah. and we can create, fix problems. Yeah. We can that's make like a the bad duality of and life. We can make a good painting. Right. That's just mirrored <laughs> in everything, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, who are like your top three working artists today that you love? Hmm. Like what three shows would you be so excited to see that open up at, you know, the Guggenheim tomorrow? Right. I mean, I and and the artists that I would name don't necessarily use technology at all. Um yeah, that's- and so I really love Sonia Clark's work. She mm-hmm. does a lot of really politically loaded work that references American history um, using textiles and materials in really experimental ways. And she just had a really amazing show at the Fabric Workshop uh, Museum in Philadelphia. Um, and... I really love Paul Venus's work. He does a lot of really politically loaded bio art work, mm-hmm. and uh, 
he had a show at the Esther Klein Gallery a few couple years ago, I think. And um, I mean, there is a there is a uh, I I really love what Ian Chang is doing. With, oh man, he's one of my favorite with favorite technology yeah. and. I mean, his work, I think, operates on a lot of levels that tra- definitely transcends technology, definitely. and but asks a lot of really important questions in really funny ways about it, and yep. um, about artificial intelligence and automation and tools that we're using every day, like chatbots, like chatting with artificial intelligence customer service, right. and. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that there's that that's a great example of like this work that can actually feel very painterly and um, have this like aesthetic experience. Um, but the underpinnings of it, both technical and political, are, are really rich. Yeah. Um, and well, someone like Paul Chan does that and it leans more, I think, on the political than the, you know, maybe the technological questions. But I think he's a really strong artist who's asking those kind of questions. Yeah. But I'm glad you said Ian Chang. I'm, do you know him, by the way? No. no. Oh, man, I'd love to talk to him. <laughs> I'll let you know if I meet him. Yeah, I got to I got to, you know, knock on that door, basically. But yeah, I think he's doing some stuff that's really uh, compelling. Yeah. And just the, the, the visuals of them, too. Like, I saw a piece in Freeze Art Fair. It was just uh-huh. the giant projection. And it was so captivating. Like, yeah. the scale of it. And in the midst of all the other stuff that was going on, it really kind of stood out. I don't know. Yeah. Strong stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's, there's a certain familiarity of the imagery mm-hmm. that he's dealing with that... You video feel games. like you, yeah, video games. Yeah. So you feel like, oh, that's what's happening. And then right. there's all these uncanny things that start to happen where yeah. um, either like, you know, figures and actors in what feels like this game landscape are doing things that they wouldn't normally do or um, the landscape itself, things are happening that uh, are strange. And um, so, yeah, it's like those little surprises. I like work that has surprises. Yeah. Like, Corey, Corey Archangel does stuff like that in a mm-hmm. more poppy yeah. visual sense. Yeah. But the same sort of underlying concept. In yeah. A way. Yeah. And the same way that I thought about your work, I was thinking a little bit about Tim Hawkinson and just mm-hmm. how he's kind of like, there's mining different, you know, methods and technologies to make the work. But mm-hmm. I mean, this is just so playful and kind of, I don't know, there's something that I feel like that work is much more pop in the sense that it just can like anyone can walk up to it and be like, whoa, you know, it's kind of like awe inspiring in a sense of like, kind of like when you go to a science museum for kids or mm-hmm. something and they do those like big installations that are there to kind of, you know, they tickle you first and mm-hmm. then the science is kind of hidden within it. Yeah. You know, but I, lo- it's, it's really I love similar. Tim Hawkinson's work. I, yeah. I saw, I think I saw several of his exhibitions when I was in the Bay area yeah. and even in Southern California and yeah, he was definitely an influence in terms of use of materials and um, using materials in a really surprising way. And that kind of um, fine balance between the part and the whole and something that's 
whimsical and also abject and um and kind of an experience of something from both close and far and and just the level of detail that like having a a level of detail to the work but also still having like a really strange funky edge to it that like feels like it might fall apart at any given moment and like physically yeah well all good people to be in the conversation with i imagine yeah yeah (laughs) so your show actually doesn't does it close tomorrow no it closes on the 23rd oh okay and then there's a closing reception and artist talk on the 19th can you tell people about the gallery and the you know how long it's up yeah and then maybe where else they can find your work if they can't get to philly yeah, so the the exhibition is called Confirmations, and it's at the Esther Klein Gallery, which has been showing art and science work for, I think, about 40 years now. Well, and nice. um, the exhibition is up until the 23rd, and the artist talk will take place on the 19th at 5, and then that'll be followed by a, a closing reception And some of this work is actually traveling to an exhibition next fall at Austin Peay State University um, in, I believe, late October, November. And that'll be really exciting to kind of reimagine some of these pieces in a different space, because a lot of the work that's in this show um, was really made for this unique space. So the the Esther Klein Gallery is, is actually... Um, situated in the lobby of a building in the Science Center in Philadelphia. And so it's got a lot of strange angles and um, and kind of it's a it's a relatively unconventional art space. So it's a lot of white cube, it's not a white cube. <laughs> yeah. And some of, so some of the pieces were really actually inspired by the space, like yeah. the, the motorized sculpture. I was sort of inspired to make something that went behind this blind corner in this room and so it was sort of like made in terms of the scale of this yeah. this corner that you don't see when you first enter this room and um so so i'll be able to kind of reimagine these these pieces in a in a larger more conventional white cube space nice. next year and um and then I have some other group shows that I'm going to be in. There, there's one in Fort Worth right now that um, is an exhibition that's focused on movement mm-hmm. in art. And it's actually curated around Camille Utterback's work with interactive projections. Um, and that's at the Aaron Museum of American Art in, uh, in Fort Worth, Texas. Nice. And what other things are happening? You do social media, correct? I do do social media. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so Instagram's just to add ins- your name. Yeah, right? Instagram yeah. is just my name, and Facebook is just my name, and Twitter is Laura Splan Art. And I don't really know what to do with twitter uh i basically just push my instagram to everything because i don't really know what to do with the other ones but instagram's the best place for people to see like if you have something coming up yeah 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 um so yeah i think that there's another show in december in louisiana at the masseur art museum 
um, that's an exhibition curated around technology and science. And I'll actually be showing some very low-tech work in that exhibition. Those are paper collages. So nice. they're all collages that are um, very uh, meticulous, meticulously cut pieces from lifestyle and fashion and beauty and um, like home magazines that are imagery from uh, advertisements that are kind of leveraging imagery of science and technology to the purpose of selling some sort of product. So um, there are these kind of reconfigured um, arrangements and they're all just magazine collages on paper that I actually haven't gotten to show that much. So I'm really excited to nice. show those. It's pretty punk to show some analog work in <laughs> <a> science digital. <laughs> yeah, it was actually, it's, it's a pretty big body of work. I made over a hundred of these collages nice. a few years ago and, and I didn't really intend to stop making them, but I just got busy with some other projects and I still have like a whole like banker's box full of already cut pieces that are all ready to like go into yeah. new collages, but I just haven't had the time. Well, it'd be nice to see all those up. Yeah. 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 I'm really excited to see them up. And then also just in that context that it is a show yeah. that's about science and technology, but right. it's decidedly like untechnological work. So, yeah. um, yeah, I think it's a good sign. that will be great. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for taking out the time to talk. Yeah, yeah. It was great to meet. Yeah, it was really great to meet. Thank you. We'll have to meet in Brooklyn. Sounds good. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) In our neighborhoods. Right, right. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you.